God's Word, a map, a map for life. Now, the truth is most of us don't use maps anymore because it got to where we couldn't fold those things back the way that we pulled them out. And so we've gone to the extent of inventing something called the GPS, and that's what most of us use to navigate these days. Uh, actually, I actually have two GPSs now. I've got one on my phone. Uh, her name is Siri. I have another one in my car. Her name is Linda. I found Linda doesn't like me very much. <clears throat> She's always recalculating. And uh, one of the things I learned about Linda is she has a, a desire to take me through residential neighborhoods or places where there are a lot of traffic lights. And so I've made a choice in my life to not listen to Linda. And uh, we all have to make those choices, what voices we listen to and the ones that we don't. Have you decided what the authority will be for your life. The who or the what that you will depend on to get you from point A to point B, to get you to the end of life and for you to actually be where you intended to go. Now there are people who trust their emotions, very frankly. Others who trust their own intellect. Others who flow with whatever the crowd is doing at the time. Whatever the latest trend or fad is. Now, others have chosen to trust Oprah although she's less accessible than she used to be. Uh, others, a, a trusted counselor or a mentor. Who or what is an authority in your life? Uh, we would like to make the case that the best choice is to choose God's word, that you allow that to be your map for life. One of the things we say a lot around here is we say shoot for seven, hit five. And what we mean by that is we really encourage you just to spend a little time every day in God's word to shoot for reading one chapter of God's Word every day. If you hit it five days a week, consider that a success because for most of us, that would be five more times than we did it before we started shooting for seven and hitting five. Now, why, why that encouragement? To choose the Word of God as your map for life, why the encouragement for you to check in on a regular basis at that map in comparison to the route that you currently are on or the progress that you're making or the boulevard that you're cruising down at whatever speed. Because we believe that the scripture is indispensable for salvation. Now when we talk about salvation, we're talking about three different aspects. There are three different dimensions to salvation. There's first of all, that initial part of salvation when we realize that we're sinners separated from a loving God. And that he's made the ultimate sacrifice by coming to this world and laying his down, life down so that we could be forgiven, so we could start over. And that's called justification. Somebody defined it this way, just as if I never sinned. And, and that's the first part of salvation. But unfortunately, a lot of us see that as the entire portion. And if that's the only thing we need a roadmap for, then basically we can get saved, we can make ourselves right with God through the vehicle by which he has provided, and then we could say, God, I'll see you later. I'll see you at the end of life. But salvation is more than that. Salvation is not only justification. Salvation is also sanctification. And sanctification is that part of salvation that allows us to become more like Jesus every day, allow our character and our life to be shaped by the Word of God. Somebody once said that justification is uh, salvation from the punishment of sin, while, while sanctification is the salvation from the power of sin in my daily life. And then there's a third aspect of 
of salvation, which is called glorification. And that is where one day I will be free even from the presence of sin. I will go to that new heaven and that new earth that the word of God tells us about, that provides hope for us, where there is no more sickness. Uh, There are no more enemies. There are no more disagreements. It's all peace and it's perfection. It's what God intended for this world in the very beginning before sin crept in, before we made the wrong choice about who we would listen to. And it comes around full circle. If you have a Bible with you today, I invite you to turn with us to our text, which comes from 2 Timothy, the third chapter. If not, it's listed there on the back of your worship guide and also will be on the screens. Paul is speaking to his protege, Timothy, and he says, You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to what? Salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He's talking there about justification. But he goes on to talk about sanctification. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, knowing what to believe, for reproof, knowing what not to believe, for correction when you go the wrong path, for training in righteousness to keep you on the right path, so that every man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So what have you chosen? Now, can we prove that the scripture is the best roadmap? Short answer is no. But the truth is, is that everyone here will put their trust, they will put their faith in someone or something. And I encourage you to be as critical about whatever you put your faith in as though you would be critical of those who have put their faith in the Word of God. Faith is not a spiritual thing. It's something we do every day. Every time I board a plane, I'm exercising faith. Every time I take a pill and I swallow it, knowing little to nothing about its contents, it's an act of faith. And so whoever you choose or whatever you choose as your map for life, there is faith. But why would we make the case that You should put your faith in the Word of God rather than whatever you're putting your faith in. In short, evidence. Simply evidence. That you would humble yourself before the Word of God because of the evidence that is there. In James 1, 21, it says this. It says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility. That's the authority. In humility, receive the Word implanted which is able to save your souls. And when he's talking there about saving your souls, he's talking about justification. He's talking about sanctification. And yes, he's also talking about glorification. The the word of God has the potential, has the power to save you from the punishment of sin, to save you from the power of sin in your daily life, to save you even from the presence of sin on some future day. So what evidence is there that this is the best map for life? Well, first of all, there is external evidence. You know, the Bible is an amazing book, and nobody can deny that. It is uh, the book that has been published published in more languages than any other book in the history of the world, uh, read by more people than any book in the history of the world. Just when you think about how it was created, it was created over a 1,500-year time span, 40 generations written by 40, these 66 books, written by 40 different authors of all educational backgrounds, everything from fishermen and shepherds 
to prime ministers and kings and even the cupbearers of kings. And yet there is a unity in the scriptures that is uncanny, almost unbelievable, that it could be written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And yet there is a unity that is nothing less than miraculous, writing on hundreds of controversial subjects, and yet there is an agreement in that book. When we look at external evidence, we see historical records outside of the Bible that verify the accuracy of the history of the Bible. When we look at archaeology, which gives us an insight on whether or not the facts that we have in the scriptures that are presented as historical fact are true, we find agreement across the board of how miraculous the Word of God is. Uh, allow me to read from a noted archaeologist, Nelson Glick. He says, as a matter of fact, however, it may be clearly stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Now, I could take the rest of my time just naming the discoveries that have been made where in the past people have said, well, that can't be accurate because there's no historical record of that city ever existing or that king ever existing or that place ever being a part of the real world. And time and time again, time and time again, it's been proven false by the reality of that. Back in the late 1970s, it was being said that uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were, were mythical until in the 1970s at a particular tell in uh, Israel. And by the way, if you've been to Israel, you can go across the countryside and you can see low hills. And, and after a while, you can begin to identify them after you've seen enough of them, and they're called tells. And when you see those tells, what they are is ancient civilizations. And one of the ways that they determine an archaeological dig is they will, they will look at the landscape and this unnatural kind of outcropping you could tell that a civilization used to be there and they begin to dig and sure enough they find that there at a tale called the Tel Mordic in 1970s they found 15,000 stone tablets and on several of those stone tablets they found references to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah again and again and again when we find facts we find that they line up with the Word of God also, it could take a long time today to talk about the prophecies that you will find where hundreds of years before it happened that there was accurate prophecies that were fulfilled which gave verification that the one who was writing that Old Testament passage was a prophet sent from God and given a unique and special ability. If you want to read more about that, there's a book called uh, When Skeptics Ask. It's written by Gisler, or Geisler rather, and Brooks. It talks about those prophecies. It talks about those archaeological discoveries. It talks about those extra-biblical historical sources. And it makes for an interesting read. Also, another book that he's written, which I can't recommend yet because I haven't read it, but I love the title, is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. All right? <laughs> now, one, one of the uh, questions that is asked fairly often is if that which we hold in our hands that we call the Bible that's made out of the Old Testament and the New Testament is actually what was the original or close enough to the original uh, writings. Now, when we come to the Old Testament, we have a bit of a problem. 
And the problem is, is that the Jewish people were so respectful of the holy writings that whenever there was a manuscript that was handwritten that became frayed or damaged in any way, they would destroy it. They would ceremoniously destroy it like you and I would if there was a tattered American flag. And so as a result, some of the ancient copies of the Old Testament were dismissed. But now because of that, and they knew the importance of that, what they did is they established entire professions that had nothing else to do but to copy word for word the Old Testament books so that they could be passed on with accuracy. And in doing so, they made very strict rules about how that was to be done and the supervision which would be given to that. Even to the extent of saying, we're going to count the letters on every single page. We're going to limit the number of columns that can be on each page and the number of words that can be on each page. If we go back and we count the syllables and we count the letters and we count the words and we count the columns, it's got to measure up or that piece of copying will be totally destroyed. And a result of that, there's an accuracy that was built into that holy reverence for the scriptures that give us some kind of assurance. But because of that, because they destroyed ancient manuscripts when they became damaged in any way, at one point, the closest thing that we had to the, of any Old Testament book was at least 1,200 years removed from the time that it was actually written. Fortunately, in the second century, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. And because they didn't have the same uh, feelings about discarding the scriptures, we can go all the way back to the second century, 200 years after Christ, and we can translate from that Greek into the Hebrew today, and we see the accuracy that has been kept over time. That's all we had until 1947. In 1947, a shepherd boy was tending his sheep uh, just east of Jerusalem in a place called Qumran out in the Judean wilderness. And he threw a stone down into a cave there at Qumran. That's a photograph that we took several years ago when we were in Israel of the Qumran caves. And he broke a clay jar. And in hearing that sound, he went into the cave, and what he found there is he found all of these clay jars of scrolls that had been placed in those jars in the first century. Now, there were many things that were a part of what has now come to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls because of uh, the nearness to the Dead Sea. But because they were in clay jars, because they were written on leather, and because of the lack of humidity in the Judean wilderness, they found uh, almost... Uh, every book of the Bible. In fact, they lacked one book of the Old Testament, either partial or complete books of the Old Testament. And so for the very first time, we were able to go back a thousand years from what we had in terms of copies of the Old Testament. And when we compared, for example, the book of Isaiah that was copied in the first century with with another uh, one that was about the year 1200 AD, the Codex Hebrew Bible, there was a 95% accuracy between those in a 1,000 years. And the, and the variants were minimal. They were uh, misspelled uh, words or they were an art, a definite article that was changed. There was nothing in the differences between the two copies separated by a 1,000 years that changed the meaning of one single passage. Again, uh, uh, just an insight on the hand of God protecting the Holy Scripture. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, obviously, because it was written at a later time, uh, we have more ancient manuscripts. We have about 5,366 
uh, partial or complete books of the uh, New Testament. Here's an interesting thing about the New Testament as well. If we had none of those manuscripts, we could reproduce the entire uh, New Testament except for 11 verses from writings from the first and second century, excuse me, from the second and third century of church fathers who quoted scripture. And when you put all their letters together, they, they quote, quoted the entire New Testament except for 11 verses in second John and third John. So we could actually reproduce from the second and the third century the New Testament that we hold in our hands today. But in addition to that, we have manuscripts that date back to within 70 years of when the New Testament was written, which was written, by the way, in completion within 90 years, uh, beginning from 50 years uh, removed to 90 years uh, from the actual events that took place. And so with great certainty, we can say that what we hold in our hand is accurate and that God has been involved in this preservation. We look at recent history and we see the number of regimes that have tried to destroy the scripture or ban the scriptures. Those regi regimes are now gone. The scripture is still here. And what God, it's very evident to see the miraculous way that God has guided the preservation of what you and I called the Holy Bible. Now, those are external evidences. Do those external evidence prove that what I'm holding in my hand is the Word of God? No, but it's evidence. And it talks about uh, uh, the certainty in which we can know that God has provided this for us. It's obvious when you see the unity, when you see the historical evidence, when you see archaeological evidence, uh, when you see all the preservation of the Scripture, that God's hand is there. Now, second evidence that we have that I believe is stronger is what I would call relational evidence. Let's turn back to the scripture that we read earlier and just look at verse 14. Uh, Paul is writing to his protege Timothy and he says, you however continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of. Why? Knowing from whom you have learned them. How is it that you read a good book? How is it that you end up at a great restaurant? Why is it that you find yourself watching an award-winning movie because someone you know and trusted on that subject recommended those to you right it's the same reason that most of you are here today because someone you knew and trusted recommended a life following the word of God and many of you came to faith because of that that that's my testimony uh, two of the finest people that I have ever known in my life are my mom and dad. I always say two of the finest Christians that I've ever known, but even beyond that, two of the finest human beings. And as a very young boy, I put my faith in Jesus Christ to a great extent because the people that I respected the most said that they had been following him for decades. And I looked at their lives and I saw the evidence of love and patience, of generosity, of gentleness, and I said, I want what they have. Uh, in 1 Timothy, the first chapter, verse 5, as Paul began this book, he wrote to Timothy and he says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. And what he was pointing to is he was pointing to the significant people in Timothy's life. And he was helping him re be reminded of 
why he was where he was on that day because of the people that he respected and the people that he trusted. Now, some of you didn't have uh, parents like I have. Some of you didn't have a godly grandmother who paved the way for you. But here's what I believe that most of us, if not all of us here today, there's somebody in your life that you respected and you valued their opinion. And you saw them not only recommend this as a map for life, but you saw them following this as a map for life. And you saw the result of it. In 1 John, the first chapter, in verse 3, uh, John writes these words. He says, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, John wrote the scripture that he wrote, the scriptures that we have, to as a, first of all, personal recommendation. One who had walked with Christ said, you need to know this is the Messiah. He is the real thing. I was there and saw him crucified. I was there and saw him resurrected. I walked with him after his resurrection. I saw him ascending into heaven. I have followed faithfully that which he has laid out for us, and I recommend him personally to you. John wrote those words to some who then turned and recommended him to others, who in turn turned and recommended him to others, who in turn recommending, and on and on and on and on. And here we are today. Here we are today. Because the word works. And they recommended on the fact that not that they intellectually thought about it, but that they participated in this movement called Christianity. And it's been passed down from generation to generation for a reason. But I think the greatest evidence that we could have is the powerful evidence of personal evidence. Also listed there in your worship guide is a scripture that comes from Colossians 1.9. It says this, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you. What is he praying? And to ask that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit and every good work. There's that phrase again. In 2 Timothy, we read that we might be equipped for every good work. Bearing fruit and every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, if you've been here for some time, you've seen me draw the diagram that I'm drawing. And the reason you have is because it is basic to the Christian life. There in Colossians 1.9, he says, I pray that you might know what the will of God is. And we can know, not because we have a feeling or we think we might have heard a voice. We have written in black and white for us, preserved for us for thousands of years, the will of God. And he says, I pray that you might know the will of God so that you might understand it. He calls it understanding and wisdom. And then he says, so that you then might walk in a manner worthy of that which you understand. We said last week that interpretation without application is abortion, and it is. I pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all wisdom and understanding, so that you might walk accordingly, and that in every season you might bear fruit for every good work, and then increase in the knowledge of God. 
See, it's an ongoing cycle. It's a flywheel. We know God's will. We understand God's will for our life at this season of our life. We actually do what God's will says, and it bears the fruit that God said it would bear, which makes us hungry to know more of his will. See, some of you are not interested in God's will because you've not been involved in this cycle. Maybe intellectually, you've come to understand what a particular concept is in the Word, but you've never lived it in your life, and as a result, it never produced the fruit that the Word of God said it would, and that's why you're not interested in the Word of God. See, salvation is not just about going to heaven one day when you die. Salvation is about becoming more like Jesus until that time. And it's this cycle that allows that to happen, for our lives to be constantly shaped and for us to be motivated to allow the Word of God to be the roadmap for life. Here's my personal evidence, my personal confession. The times that I did it the way God's Word said to do it has always turned out the way God said it would turn out. And it's been good. And the times in my life where I disregarded, where I thought I was smarter than God, that somehow that I was an exception to the rule, every single time it's been a disaster. Now, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. And more and more, I see the desperate need I have to follow the direction of the Word of God. And some of you are here today and you've disregarded the word of God in your life. As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working out? (laughs) You've disregarded what he said about forgiveness and bitterness. And you have fractured relationships to show for it. You, you, You have disregarded what he said about finances and about love and about fidelity. You've ignored what he said about habits and addictions you've disregarded what he said about almost every category and the pain in your life is the direct result of that God is not punishing you God's not mad at you God loved us so much that he gave us a map so we wouldn't get lost and you disregard it at your own peril yes there is external evidence that says that the word of God is accurate and it's reliable and there's relational evidence as people that we know and we care about who have followed closely not perfectly but closely the path of God and they continually recommend that same path to us not in a haughty way but in a come follow me one beggar showing another beggar where the bread is But the greatest evidence that you will ever find is you will find it in personal evidence where you take a step. We began this series by saying the word of God is a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but it tells us enough for the next step in our life. I never have asked God to tell me what the next step is that I wasn't able to open up the word and in time find exactly what that next step will be. But you know, when we talk about the reliability of the word, we're not talking about the book of itself. 
itself. But we're talking about what this book points to. And you can begin in the book of Genesis at the very beginning, and you can go all the way to the very last book of Revelation, and it all points to the same person, Jesus Christ. He is foreshadowed in the very book of Genesis, the very first book that talks about the covering that God provided because of Adam and Eve's sin. And you go all the way to Revelation and you have them praising that lamb who was slain, who provided that covering of salvation. And throughout the whole book, it keeps pointing back to the one that it says in the Gospel of John was the word. The word personified. And it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's not the written word that saves us, but the written word points to the word in flesh who died for us. That's why in less than three weeks, uh, 30,000 people at all of our campuses will sing his praises and celebrate his coming. And we will be joined by millions of people all around the world who have personal experience. The longer I walk with Jesus, the less I struggle with doubt. Because it works. Simply, it works. Let's thank God for that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your written word. Thank you for the miraculous way that you preserved it for us and the excess ability that we have to it. I pray, dear Father, that we would be more students of your word, that we would understand the honor that it is that the God of the universe would want to communicate to us and that you've given us your Holy Spirit to guide us and to interpret it for us. What an amazing, amazing part of life. Help us, dear Father, as we seek to abide in your word as you abide in us. And thank you for the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you for the celebration that we're in this season of the coming of what the entire Bible is about and that we can have a personal relationship with the triune God because of that arrival. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.